This is Building Up, brought to you by Watt, Teeter, Hoffer & Fitzgerald and the Vertex Companies, where you get insights from industry experts, reviewing topics construction professionals deal with on a daily basis, observations on new developments within the industry, and practical guidance from Vertex's experts and the attorneys at Watt, Teeter to help your business thrive in the construction industry. I'm Jeff Katz with Vertex, here with Brian Padov of Wateter. We are welcoming you back to Building Up, the podcast for construction professionals. Brian, why don't you tell us about our awesome guests that we have here today? Yeah, happy to be back uh, with two um, very good guests yet again. Uh, we have Tem- Ted Baumgartner from Vertex and Frank Marcico from Wateter. And they're here today to discuss the role of experts and consultants within the construction industry. Um, you know, when to get them involved, how they can be best utilized. Um, you know, what, what when's the best timing to get them uh, involved on a construction project? Is it during litigation? Is it pre-litigation, pre-dispute even? Um, so again, I, I think what they have to say um, is very interesting and insightful for um, construction professionals throughout the industry. Uh, so I'm happy to have them here. Yeah, and these guys are coming in with tons and tons of experience. They've been in this in the industry forever. Speaking with them before the show, I mean, they were so excited to, to talk on this topic. So I'm really looking forward to picking their brains and uh, hopefully all learning a little bit today. Uh, so, uh, Brian, you ready? Yeah, sounds good. Let's get into it. Frank, Ted, welcome in. Thank you. Ted, clients are always asking and wondering why hiring a consultant or an expert is necessary or important and what they're going to bring to the table. With that in mind, when you get involved early on in a product, sort of as a consultant, uh, pre-litigation, how do you view your role and your purpose in that position? Thanks, Jeff. It is pretty common to get involved very early on. I mean, I've got cases where I get involved while the project is still well under construction, but the parties see a train wreck coming, so they want to get prepared. I think some of the best I can that an expert can bring to the table during those early stages is to be able to help the client and the attorney understand the technical issues and, pro- and provide a preliminary assessment of those issues that may relate to the strength of their legal position or the arguments that they're making. And that would be often, you know, code requirements, standard of care type stuff, that kind of thing, or preliminary assessment of damages or delay and that kind of thing. You know, a good consultant, I think, will be able to advise the attorney on how the consultant can best help in the process and actually help shape their own assignment for the benefit of the client and help identify other specialists that might be needed. I'm often asked when I come in early on in the areas that may be outside of my expertise, and I may be able to give some advice on other specialists that might be needed that may be more on point. Another thing I think is very helpful in the earliest stages is the ability to anticipate the position that the opposition may take. You know, experienced experts and consultants have probably been on both sides of similar disputes and may have good insight into how the opposing side may be looking at it at that point from a technical evaluation standpoint. And then often I advise on strategy or approach that the ex, that I may have seen or experienced in similar cases, uh, which often may be helpful, and give some insight into what can or should be done to prepare for the dispute. You know, in coming into 
projects that may be in distress that are headed toward litigation, you know, often understanding where this is all headed and what is going to be needed in order to play this out in case it goes the distance to trial. From a technical standpoint, I may be able to help give some good input on early efforts that might set the stage for a better outcome down the road. And do you see that role change or develop uh, as you get designated as an expert or as it moves and progresses towards litigation? What do you think um, is important for uh, expert to bring to the table at that point? Yeah, I do think it does change. I think that, uh, you know, from that, from the early work, and then as you move into, let's say, what's maybe we'll call it the mid stages of a dispute resolution and litigation, I think it does it does definitely shift. I think that the best the best experts I think bring to the table an ability to make really complex stuff really simple. It's not about making complex stuff more complicated. It's about making it really simple because when you start thinking in terms of how disputes get resolved. And whether it might be at mediation or whether it might be ultimately before a trier of fact, it's all going to come down to making the complicated really simple. So I think that the, the burden then shifts to take the complicated stuff and make it really simple so that, the, so that non-technical people can come to the same conclusion that the expert may have come to and understand it as common sense. That's the most compelling, I believe. And often... That type of a presentation at mediation uh, can help bring resolution. So, with that in mind, the sort of two timeframes that you discuss, and you know, there being benefits getting involved early in order to help steer the matter, or maybe to give guidance uh, on you know what can be compiled and reviewed uh, in advance of litigation. Do you think there is a ideal time? for a consultant or expert to get involved with a client? Is it very early on or, you know, does it make a difference? Well, I certainly think that there's a substantial benefit to getting involved early on. Um, You know, in those earliest stages is usually the process starts going forward relative to uh, each side's kind of assessing the strength of their own position as they look to potentially mediate or come to some sort of a a resolution or even pre-litigation resolution and understanding the, the technical aspects of a of a dispute and understanding the strengths of those technical aspects as it may relate to the legal aspects is I think very informative and helpful and helps and hopefully helps people make the right decisions. You know, the worst possible scenario is when a consultant comes in and tells a client an attorney what he thinks they want to hear and then they go forward and spend a ton of money fighting a battle all the way to trial to have a jury ultimately come back and tell them a different outcome. Uh, I think a good consultant and expert can bring a lot of value to helping bring maybe some reality to the process and give some insight based on other experience that expert may have had that may help people understand the true value of their case and hopefully come to a good resolution. That's interesting. Um, Frank, do you have any, I guess, insights into you know, when is the ideal time to have an expert get involved? Yes, I, I agree with Ted. I think Ted brought up some excellent points. And, you know, all factors being equal, the sooner the better. Um, from an attorney's point of view, one of the most difficult situations you can um, find your client in or yourself or your expert in is where 
a certain theory of the case has been around for a certain period of time with everyone seemingly on the same page that we have a great case, the opposing side has a weak case, and we all kind of go off of that assumption early on. Then when it comes time to hire the expert, the expert comes in and says, whoa, I can support these points, but I cannot support these points on the other hand. And for the uh, weaker points, the expert might not feel comfortable supporting or giving those opinions at all. And to compound that situation even further uh, is if there's a relatively short period of time between when the potential expert warns you of that and when uh, initial expert reports and disclosures are due. So if you hire the expert early on and there are any potential pitfalls, you know that right away. And um, if from an attorney's point of view, uh, if I think that the expert can't give uh, the opinions that we need, uh, we then need to shift right away to one of the following two alternative situations. Number one, we try to find an expert who can give those opinions or B, if we cannot find any other expert who can, what do we do now? Do we try to settle the case? Do we reassess our strategy? Um, those are all considerations that mitigate in favor of an earlier retention of the expert rather than a later retention. Yeah. So again, it sounds like timing is important. And going off of that, I guess, what is your view of the role of an expert overall? And then kind of along with that, as an attorney and a counselor, what do you feel your main purpose is, you know, when a client reaches out to you, whether it's way before, you know, anyone's even thinking of litigation or whether it's, you know, on the eve of, you know, someone filing a lawsuit? Yes. Uh, great questions, Brian. Um, I, to start out chronologically, um, obviously, as the attorneys, we're usually involved before the experts. And as an attorney, uh, like Ted said, the first thing that I want to know and then communicate to my client are not only what are our strengths, but even more importantly, what are our weaknesses and how do we deal with them? And for whatever weaknesses we do have, are they minor weaknesses that we can live with and distinguish um, or are they potentially fatal uh, weaknesses that might completely defeat one key aspect of one of our claims or that might make our defenses to one of the other parties' claims um, somewhat or worse yet, completely indefensible. We need to know that right away uh, and then tailor our strategy for experts accordingly. I think the role of the expert is very similar. The expert also wants to help identify early on what the strengths and weaknesses are and how to deal with them. So um, along the lines of breaking these issues up chronologically, that is how I view at least the initial roles of the attorney and the expert um, early on. Both need to be totally independent uh, and not, I'm sorry, not advocates necessarily early on. And only when we have those strengths and weaknesses figured out, then do we later transition to the next phase uh, which is how do the attorney and the expert take on more of an advocate role as opposed to just a mere independent uh, assessor of the strengths and weaknesses of the case? So, again, it's it's along the same lines as what Ted said, where, again, that role really just transforms from giving the client and the construction professional, you know, 
basically a you know a for lack of a better term a blatant view of what the strengths and weaknesses are of their position whether it's you know i i don't think that you know you have a delay game claim or an adequate delay claim or you know consulting and saying hey in order to support this claim you have to do this 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 and that's at the start of the you know way before litigation and then again that role kind of transforms as you get into and closer to a potential litigation. Exactly. And, and if I could just jump in on one more related point, um, taking everything that Ted and I both said in response to that initial role, I think that that also needs to be subdivided between the so-called substantive merits uh, of the claims and defenses with the more practical strengths and weaknesses. So once we all know what our strengths are, what our weaknesses are, um, sometimes the attorney and the expert need to collaborate and combine both of their respective areas of expertise to figure out, well, great, we know what we want to say. How do we say it? How expensive is it going to be? How difficult is it going to be? Um, some key portions of a claim or defense might be based solely or dependently upon what is purely non-written or oral testimony. Sometimes certain conversations can make or break an entire case, and those key conversations may not exist in any kind of paper or electronic format. Uh, to make it even more difficult, what if you have a witness who has sole personal knowledge of certain aspects of those oral conversations, and that person is either not employed uh, by your client anymore or is not controlled by our client anymore. The earlier you know what those practical limitations and costs and hurdles are, uh, the more smoothly the remainder of the litigation will go and the more cost effectively the sides can allocate their resources, whether it's from an attorney's point of view, the expert's point of view, or the client's point of view. And I feel like we deal with that all the time. And, you know, to your point, there's this mindset of this is the claim. Here's how we're going to prosecute it. We we think these are the, the right facts and the right arguments. But then years are going by and all of a sudden the, you know, the personnel who had access to the things to substantiate it or that we would need to provide, perform that analysis no longer work there. The records are gone. Um, and we all know that maybe there was this uh, this issue that happened and that caused some kind of impact. But all of the things we need to do to prove it have sort of <laughs> dissolved a bit. Um, so I think that, you know, having the expert and having the attorneys involved early, obviously, you know, brings to light early what we need to substantiate the case and actually perform, you know, an effective analysis. So I think I'll, I, I, I echo you, and I always appreciate when we're involved early and can help guide the case, but also gives us adequate time in case what we expect to review isn't available. And um, so that kind of leads me to something that I, I feel like I deal with in 10, I'm sure you deal with too. We have all of this production on a matter, tens of thousands of documents from all of the parties involved. Uh, is there too much information that you can give an expert or is there too little information? I mean, is it, I, I've gotten data dumps with no indexes and it says, here you go, figure out what you need. H how do you guide that process? Because that's a huge cost factor and um, you know, really can, can overwhelm, I think, an expert. 
In terms of um, taking the what I like to call the outer universe of documents and information that are potentially relevant um, to a given litigation, as the attorney, uh, my role is to try to whittle that down as much as I can uh, to everything that we are going to need, whether it's in terms of our own affirmative claims uh, or in terms of our defenses to the other side's affirmative claims. In terms of what we pass on to the expert, I think you have to look not only at the substance of what you pass on to the expert, uh, but I think as you have alluded to, the formatting of it as well. Of course, nowadays it's passed on in electronic format uh, pretty much, not only because it's easier, but because the volume of paper would just be uh, downright unworkable. But um, I think it's also key, too, to make sure that information that we produce to the other side is bait stamped. It's always good for the attorneys and the experts to refer to specific documents, uh, oftentimes by bait stamps. A lot of times we have multiple versions of a given email chain or different snapshots in an email chain. Sometimes emails have attachments. Sometimes the same email doesn't. It's always good to have a bait stamp as kind of a, a placeholder or something to keep everything grounded so that we know we're all looking at or talking about the exact same document. Um, in terms of the delivery method, uh, sometimes we just deliver bait stamps, electronic copies to the experts. Sometimes we give the experts access to the same e-discovery platform that we have. That way we can both pull up our screens and uh, consider documents almost as if we're both live or in the same room at the same time. Uh, that allows for a more efficient interaction and discussion between the attorney and the expert. Um, in terms of which specific documents to pass on, um, I believe that whatever, any and all documents that are produced are the exact same documents that should be given to the expert. Um, by giving the expert less than that, you run the risk of it appearing that you're hiding certain things from the experts, your own experts rather, or that you might be shielding them from things that you, the client, don't want them to see. And if the jury gets that impression or the fact finder or the arbitrator gets that impression, that's going to raise a lot of credibility issues, not only for the expert, but for the client as well. So I guess to recap, um, it's good to be on the same page in terms of bait stamping, what documents are being produced, by what means do you get those to the expert, and that can be subdivided in terms of not just electronic copies, but do you share the same e-discovery platforms as well? So those are the main considerations that I would identify for that question. Yeah, and really quick, just to jump on that, you know, I think as an attorney's, you know, again, I know, Frank, you mentioned it. It's our job, really, to whittle down the information we receive from the client. You know, we would rather have more documents um, and have the whole universe of documents and us figure out, hey, this is what supports this theory. This is what supports this theory, rather than um, having, you know, the client or construction professional who, you know, who may not understand all the different nuances of our, you know, cause of action or defense, have them do that aspect of it when it should be, you know, the attorney who's going to be really, um, you know, zealously advocating for the client in litigation. So uh, that's just my two cents on that. That's exactly right. And very briefly, um, and when you as the client have an affirmative claim, you have the burden of proof, not only as to those specific claims, 
but as to each legal element of each claim. And that's something that is uniquely within the purview of the attorney. The expert can give the best, most well-reasoned opinions in the world, but if affirmative evidence is not given for each element of each affirmative claim or each affirmative defense, you lose legally. So that can be a fatal oversight if that process is not conducted from the attorney's point of view. I think the expert then comes in and puts meat on the bones of that. Once we have whittled it down and identified what all those necessary uh, evidentiary elements are, then the expert comes in and provides the true substance and the true support uh, to back each one of those elements up. Ted, do you have anything to add to that? Absolutely. I mean, I'm just sitting here listening to Frank and I'm going, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm over here and, you know, I'm a cheerleader as I'm listening to that because uh, as an expert, I'm mean, Frank, you're spot on as an expert. I mean, I, I sometimes we'll get piles and piles of documents that may not be bait stamped and then be halfway through an analysis and then get the file bait stamp. And it's very disruptive to have to go back in and then reshift back to the bait stamp version love getting the bait stamp documents from the beginning. Somebody has to go through all that stuff and sort out and, and deduplicate, get rid of the duplicates and organize files. When those come from the attorney, organized, somewhat deduplicated, et cetera, it just saved time all the way around for the expert. And if it, all aspects, you know, if you look at, if you consider any, all the things that have changed in our world and the, in the litigation world over the last 30 years that I've been doing this, this document, issue is the most dramatic. You know, back at, used to, we would get banker's boxes and have to take post-it notes and post, you know, uh, tag documents that we wanted to make copies of. And the, it, the process itself tended to narrow these piles because it cost money. But these days uh, with the electronic files, the amount of information is just tremendous. And so we're, we use the uh, e-discovery very heavily. Uh, and do uh, for searches and documents and and organization, but to the extent that the attorney can help organize that, make sure it's all bait stamped, et cetera, going in, uh, it sure helps the process and saves a lot of money for the client ultimately. One other thing I'm going to say on that is that from the expert's position, you know, one of the worst experiences is if they didn't give you a document that had some importance and you never saw it, and you get to deposition, and you're in the middle of giving your testimony, and you're faced with that document for the very first time while you're giving testimony and asked to ask whether you should, you know, would you consider this, et cetera? Should have this been uh, evaluated, et cetera? And you'd never seen the document before. And that puts you in a really unfortunate position. So I agree uh, with that, that we have to have a, as, as close to possible as a complete file for everything relevant to what we're doing or we're gonna set ourselves up for a bad day. Ted, with the 30 plus years of experience and obviously your qualification as an expert so many times, it's probably not even a, a thought anymore that uh, someone's going to you know, try to really go through your quals and, and, and question you on that. But there's a lot of consultants who do have tons of expertise and, and really do qualify as an expert, but they have little testifying experience. They don't haven't actually got on the stand. Uh, when they finally get in that role and they're given that opportunity, what advice do you have for them in order to prepare for giving testimony for you know the first time or maybe even the first 10 times, since I'm sure it takes uh, 
some getting used to and some some experience to to really excel. Yeah, um, I think one of the best things to do is to read a lot of deposition transcripts. I mean, especially if you can read deposition transcripts, if you know ahead of time who's going to be deposing you, and you can read transcripts of that attorney, that opposing attorney deposing other people, uh, maybe in the same case or whatever. Being able to read deposition transcripts gives the deponent a opportunity to kind of get the feel of the process, the cadence of it and how it works, et cetera. The other thing is I tell people in getting ready to prepare them for deposition is you should worry a lot about every last detail. Uh, Second guess yourself, worry about everything, get into every aspect of the case. Don't leave any stone unturned with respect to what you're evaluating and what you're relying upon. Think of worst case scenario on everything and worry about it up until before your depot. Then when you go get deposed, try to flip that switch off, realize that you don't really have anything to lose here and go in fearless. Uh, experts who are worried about the outcome, who get a little too bought into being too much of an advocate for their client and feel somehow bought into the outcome, do a bad job. That's why doctors don't operate on their relatives, right? It's you're way better off if you can disassociate and do it and you do an outstanding job if you're fearless. And good attorneys will do a good job of preparing experts. And, uh, and I know Frank's probably done this a lot, sit down with his expert and gone through the process and prepare them for that questioning. And that's where, you know, the having a high level of expertise is certainly important. Learning the process of how to then communicate during deposition and survive that what could be a stressful process if you're not prepared for it is really, really important. So uh, those are my main two things I usually tell people. Worry a lot, then quit worrying and then uh, read a lot of deposition transcripts and then tell the truth. You know, you don't have a dog yeah. in this race as an expert. Tell the truth. Call it like it is. Answer the questions with the most the briefest answer possible that fully addresses the question and wait. Take a pause between each 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 question. Pause for that moment. Think about what you're going to say. Don't get wrapped up in, you know, you don't get paid extra for speed and it certainly doesn't help the process think before you open your mouth. And um, with a few things like that, anyone with the expertise can do a great job. Yeah, those are good insights. Um, Frank, uh, along the same lines, I guess, um, you know, what are some things that you've seen over your, you know, 26 years that really make good experts stand out or good consultants stand out? I think my first point on that is pretty much uh, adopting everything that Ted just said. I feel the exact same way he does, which is read more, over-prepare more, anticipate. And when you anticipate, it's always more important to anticipate the weaknesses, anticipate the tough questions, anticipate the other side's attorney taking the documents that are most incriminating to your position and to your client and basically trying to just shove them down your throat throughout the entire deposition. If you're prepared for it and you're confident that you're prepared for it and you take your time and you think before you talk, you'll do great. Uh, the worst thing you can do is be reactionary to not anticipate uh, and to just effectively be blindsided and uh, not know how to anticipate these questions when they're asked. 
Another thing um, that I think is changing in the industry and has done so a lot in the last several decades is more and more depositions, both of fact witnesses and experts, are being videotaped. So it's bad enough to have a non-videotaped deposition where you're caught off guard or you don't know what to say or you're shown a document that you haven't seen before or that you don't remember. That just gets magnified even more if it's a videotaped deposition. And the more rattled uh, you look in answering that question, the more the opposing side is going to do everything in their power to show that video at trial. I think a lot of us don't like the way we look or sound on videos, myself being a prime example. But again, the more prepared that you are and the more you read and the more you anticipate beforehand, the better you're going to look, the better you're going to feel, and the better you feel, the more confident you're going to be, which then just is a positive snowball effect, if you will. Um, I think another thing, this is more of a minor point, uh, but I think this is crucial early on and switching gears here. Um, with expert reports, I am a very big fan of loading up the expert reports within reason, of course, with citations to what I call the record, citing to specific documents that have specific bait stamp numbers or specific exhibit numbers, whether a plaintiff's exhibit number three, defendant's exhibit number 37. Having opinions in an expert report where you can in the report, opinion by opinion, demonstrate what your supporting documents are, makes that report instantly and dramatically more credible than one that just merely states opinions or that only gives generalities as to what the supporting evidence is. Not only does it make the report more credible in and of itself as a, as a single packaged entity, but keep in mind, when it comes time for the expert's deposition, if you have all that in the report, think about how much time and stress you save by not having to re-outline or months or weeks later having to go back and re-find the documents that support each opinion. What exhibit numbers, what bait stamp numbers, nobody's going to have time to do that at the last minute. So if you do that in the report, that can make a massive difference, not only in terms of how uh, the evidence is presented, but in terms of the timeliness and the cost effectiveness by which it is presented and um, as well as saving money on prep time. Uh, so I think that is key. And I've, I've always enjoyed seeing that being done right up front. Finally, um, a more minor point, but I think people need to keep in mind that humans are visually oriented people. Um, other, this might sound silly, but other animals on this planet might be more oriented by sound or by smell. I think the vast majority of humans remember things visually. So when an expert presents a complicated issue, and, and I think one example that comes to mind are scheduling issues, it's hard for attorneys who do construction law to oftentimes have a clear grasp of the nuances of project scheduling, just think of how much harder it is for a layperson jury who has no construction experience at all, let alone in the different scheduling methods that are out there. I think the only way a finder of fact is even potentially going to understand some of these more complex concepts is to be able to visualize what these concepts are instead of just hearing verbal testimony. 
or instead of just um, reading a narrative description of what it is, the more the fact finder can visualize and picture and put together in their mind how all the pieces fit together, the more likely they're not only going to remember what you said, but to believe that what your opinion as the expert is, is more credible than the opposing side, particularly where the opposing side's presentation of the same issue is not visual. So think about that. You can have two expert opinions that from a purely substantive standpoint are, are 50-50 or equal. Which one is the jury going to go with? They're going to go with the one that they can visualize better, that they can remember better, and that they can relate to better. So the more the more you can present complex theories in a graphical format, whether it's at the report stage, the deposition stage, or the trial stage, I, I think the likelihood of the finder of fact siding with your expert opinions versus the opposing sides, the more likely you will prevail over the other side, all other factors being equal. So I think those are examples of what I have liked to see the most uh, in working with experts in my experience. Yeah, that, that's great insight. And again, I think that last point really uh, brings back to you know what Ted discussed earlier, which it's really making the complex stuff simple. Frank and Ted, thank you so much for joining us today. You guys gave some great discussion and insights into the role of experts and attorneys on construction matters and uh, really inspiring stuff for me, uh, like when we get involved in these kind of things. And uh, it's great to hear from the guys who've been around doing it for 30 plus years apiece and have seen it all. So thanks again for, for all your insights and I appreciate your time here today. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe so you don't miss any insights from future guests.